0: Feed off your failure.
1: <laughs> Jeremy Palpatine <laughs> Ruggles.
0: I don't even know that word. <laughs> you don't know the Bro, have you never watched Star Wars? <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm a grown-up. <laughs> were you
1: a, a kid during the time that Star Wars was out? I was never a
0: kid. I'm always a grown-up.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: That's actually a good point. Jeremy is a kid. That would be...
0: Imagine it, go ahead and try.
3: Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, shameless recycler of spooky sounds and
0: consumer of spiced wafers. I'm co host, Jeremy Ruggles, co illustrator and content manager of pumpkin spice latte based Angry Beaver memes.
1: and i am co-host peter cook pronunciation advisor for the moog synthesizer the moog exactly
0: <laughs> oh that all points to something right right guys it sure does point to something that it's halloween
3: it is officially the spooky season
1: this uh, episode is dropping on national
0: pumpkin day October 26th. You mean it is National Pumpkin Day. Correct. It's dropping today. I'm petting my pumpkin right now.
1: (laughs) Is it all warm and fuzzy?
0: Wait, that's not what a
1: pumpkin's supposed to be. No. But it is.
0: (laughs) Good grief.
1: Oh, wait, I said I wasn't going to do that this... (laughs) You already blew it. I said I wasn't going to (laughs) cackle and scream this year. Uh... (laughs) I could have done better with it at least, but... That's, that's, fine. <laughs> the look that's on, fine. The look on Jeremy's face was worth it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sean, you picked the record. I did pick a record.
3: Are you guys are you guys ready to get spooky?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. All right.
3: Here we go. Uh. Welcome to my record collection.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to your doom.
3: (laughs) Hey, do you guys remember the early days of the podcast back when it seemed like Jeremy hated like every other record that we brought in?
1: Yeah, are we gonna do a return to form with this episode?
3: Yeah, I miss those days. So I brought in a record sure to displease our beloved (laughs) co-host.
1: What would that be, Sean?
3: This is Beaver and Krause. All Good Men, an album just like last year with a somewhat uh, tenuous relationship with Halloween culture, but it's a very surrealist album, both the content and the art. And I think that surrealism is a underappreciated element of Halloween culture. Oh, and it does have orange on the cover, right? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, there you go. Fine. Yeah. Count it. (laughs) Close enough. Well, where are we going to start with uh, this loosely tied to Halloween record, Sean? (laughs)
3: Let's go ahead and listen to track two, Legend Days Are Over, and we'll go from there.
4: The way the medicine man went and got guidance, spirit contact with animal or whatever it is, they kept on that, and every winter they got strong and power came to them. They got strong and power came to them. 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 Power. Change to the, to the, change to
1: Everything was. Every so often, we like to reiterate the origins of this podcast. I think it's good for listeners who are picking up as we go along here. Sean and I, about seven, eight years ago, were working in a record store that had a lot of stock that wasn't moving and we weren't really familiar with. And we started just going through alphabetically through the bins and listening to selections like we would put a record on listen to maybe 30 seconds to a minute of each track on a side, just to get a feel for the album and write up a kind of a description of what was on it, hoping to, you know, well, for one thing, it kind of uh, enhanced our vocabulary of the stock, but it also would give browsers customers an idea of what the records like, you know, if uh, recommended, if you like these artists, check this out. And this was one of the records in stock at the time, Beaver and Krause. So it would have been pretty early on in our project in the B section. And I remember that song being the moment that I turned to Sean and was like, Oh my, listen, check this record out. When I heard that, you know, those those loops, what is this 1972, Sean? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, looking at the information that was on the jacket and being like, Oh my goodness, they're doing, you know, these (laughs) sample loops and just bizarre effects and i uh, yeah that that was the moment that i uh, i never forgot this record <laughs> it was one of the first ones that was like <laughs> wow there are some uh some real experimental gems buried in uh you know common stock it wasn't i think it was probably priced at 5 bucks or something like that
3: yeah and i remember you know we would pull out records with interesting album art like whoa, this one looks intense and then oftentimes you would put it on and be like this one does not oh, sound intense yeah. but uh <laughs> This is one of those records that both has a very interesting cover and very polarizing, very interesting content within. As you said, that was kind of the earliest roots of this podcast. And I was trying to think what all records we have covered on the show so far from those early days. Jimmy Spheris. There's the yep, the Jimmy Spheris record, our first episode, the Hamilton, Joe, Frank, and Reynolds. Yeah was from that same time period and a couple others that we've done, I believe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We found Godly and cream through that, which we haven't covered them yet, but we did 10 CC obviously. Cause that was right. kind of the origins of you getting into 10 CC as well. True. So there might be another one or two, but yeah, it's a good opportunity to go back and just talk about where we came up with this concept.
0: That song was the song that I, I would say got the closest to liking. It was novel, but in a way that actually interested me, unlike a lot of the material on this album.
1: Well, I I think it's probably the most, dare I say, bold choice on this album. It's a very idiosyncratic record.
3: Yeah, it's probably the most bold choice, but at the same time, it's a little more in line with the previous two records that they had put out. This is the third and final piece of a loose trilogy. That Beaver and Krause were commissioned to put out for Warner Brothers. So that's In a Wild Sanctuary <laughs> from 1970, Gundharva from 1971, and then this one, All Good Men from 1972.
1: What is this world that people were living in in the late 60s, early 70s where Warner Brothers would commission
3: a trilogy of this nature? That's amazing. Well, we will be exploring as we go on the reasons for. Why such a strange thing occurred? I will say, Jeremy, in your defense, you are probably in the majority with your opinions on this record. We've covered records before that are easy to find in the dollar bin because there was just so many of them. And that is not the case with this record. There was not a ton pressed. I mean, you know, it's put out by Warner Brothers, so it's not like a incredibly rare record, but it was a very poorly reviewed album and... Bernie Krause has actually stated that he is not a fan of this record and feels mostly embarrassed by the content. However, there are some fans, and I am one of them. So I don't fault anyone for disliking this record. There's a lot of musical whiplash going on. There's a lot of sounds and styles that don't seem to fit together at all upon first listen, but for me, that's actually part of the charm of this album.
1: You really don't know what's coming next. When you first, first few spins, I would say. Really?
3: Yeah, absolutely. That So that was track two as just an example of the musical whiplash on here. Track one is Scott a cover Joplin. of a Scott Joplin yeah. rag and they, they don't make it very weird. It's just like, it's, it's just a Scott Joplin rag with <laughs> with some like vocal choruses on it. And, and then it goes right into this, you know, early looping synthesizer piece. You
1: know, it feels like. Uh, we've talked before about how a lot of uh, in the late 60s, there were a lot of the psych bands that would include a ragtime number on their albums. And, and it feels like there was also this tendency to go back to uh, with experimental artists, especially ones getting into like synthesizer work. It seems like it's not uncommon to find these like early American composers revisited, like. I mean, uh, the United States of America, that group, I feel like there's some of that on their album. hmm
3: Absolutely. Yeah, and Bernie Krause especially has a strong folk music background. He was actually a member of the Weavers for about a year <laughs> I saw that. in the mid-60s. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he uh, replaced Pete Seeger's position in the group before the Weavers broke up in 64.
1: Yeah, because he was a guitarist originally,
3: right? yes. Yes. And yeah, his uh, relationship with folk music, I think, shines the strongest on this record because there's a strong kind of folk pop element going on, which some people consider to be kind of a sellout move with the the pop songs on here. But I mean, this doesn't this record does not play like an album that was, you know, made for the radio kind of thing. It's still yeah. deeply weird in presentation. <laughs> it's a money grab. It's a really bad money grab. <laughs> yeah. And that was not their intention from anything that I have read. It
1: re- it reminded me a little bit of uh Mason Williams. You guys know who he is? Yeah, a little bit. Classical gas, the famous instrumental piece. Mm-hmm. That album, I think it's called the the phonograph record, Mason Williams phonograph record. That album is like all over the place and kind of quirky and bizarre too. And it's like, it's like he was trying on a bunch of different hats and you see the result of that. And I feel like that's what this sounds like too.
3: Yeah. And, uh, you know, they've stated that that was kind of the intent of this record is they had all these pieces that they wanted to put onto a record And there was an attempt to combine all these radically different sounds into one album. And the common critique is that they did similar things on their previous two records, but they did a much better job of kind of seamlessly blending these different styles. Whereas this one is a a stronger like musical juxtaposition where there's there's some common threads throughout, but they have a much wider spectrum of, of genres that they cover in here. I also want to mention real quick that the vocal loops from that song are from an elder of the Nez Perce tribe from Idaho named Elizabeth Wilson. Bernie Krause had visited the tribe over a course of a few years and befriended some of the members and did that recording, the initial recording of Elizabeth Wilson with her permission. And the track was made with the permission of the tribal elder as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this would have... 1972 is right in that time period that the American Indian movement had a strong presence in the media. So I'm guessing he had his reasons for wanting to draw attention to indigenous peoples.
3: Yes. And some of the reasons behind that will also become more clear as we dive into some of this bio. So there's a lot of information I would like to cover. So I'm going to do just a little bit of their early bio real quick before we jump into another song, if that's all right with you boys. They are salesmen, right? Salesmen. <laughs> no, not at all. I think they were. Well, I mean, yes. Okay. <laughs> they, they were salesmen for a little bit. I, at the beginning, they're not like salesmen who made music as, uh, you know, like Irv
0: Tybel from the Environment series kind of thing. Oh, no, they were more like door to door. <laughs> in a way knocking on doors trying to sell moogs <laughs> let's get into it
3: so beaver and krauss that is paul beaver who was born august 14th 1925 and bernie krauss who was born december 8th 1938 wow wow so yeah i didn't realize not not the same age yeah kind of a, a significant age difference yeah. in the the duo So Paul Beaver was a session organist and sound effects artist in the 50s and early 60s. Uh, Notably, he worked on sound effects for the movies Creature from the Black Lagoon and War of the Worlds. Oh, wow. He also recorded a duo record with the incredible drummer Hal Blaine in 1965, an album called Psychedelic Percussion. That's a really cool Dollar Bin record if you can find it anymore. That's just, you know, amazing drumming mixed with some cool psychedelic synthesizer sounds from 65. Mm -hmm. Bernie Krause was working as a studio guitarist, as we mentioned, in the 60s around the New York and Boston areas, and he was in the Weavers from 1963 to 64 And then shortly after the group broke up, he moved to the West Coast and began experimenting with synthesizers. I read that he briefly even did some session work for Motown. I believe it. He was born in Detroit and was working as a studio engineer and producer in the Ann Arbor area
0: while pursuing
3: an undergraduate.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, that would make sense then.
0: He was probably going door to door, seeing if anybody wanted to buy any guitar parts. (laughs) <laughs> I have no record of that being a fact, but if you would
3: like to believe it, that's... You know, it's that's canon. Fine with me, <laughs> Okay, it's canon now. So in the mid-60s, a guy named Jack Holzman from Electra Records introduced Beaver and Krauss as they were two of the only people he knew interested in this burgeoning synthesizer technology. So this was 1966 when they met and started working together. And they pooled their resources and bought an early Moog... Synthesizer, which at the time cost them about twelve and a half thousand dollars in the mid sixties. <laughs> yep,
0: that's I had I, seen that it was like almost all of their combined life savings that they spent on this Moog.
1: Yeah, it was like buying
3: a house.
0: Yes, yeah, <laughs>
3: <laughs> absolutely. They were committed. So after purchasing the Moog and spending a lot of time working on these early synthesizer sounds, they worked with legendary composer Mort Garson on an album called The Zodiac, Cosmic Sounds. And then shortly after this, they became the official West Coast sales reps for the Moog Synthesizer Company. And there it is. Are... That's what
1: Jeremy was waiting
3: for. Told you so. Yes. <laughs> They're actually a very big reason why the Moog and synthesizers in general became popular around that time period because they were the ones... Not quite going door to door, but using all their connections in the uh, music industry to promote this instrument. And it quickly
0: started taking off for people. I heard they lived next door to Mickey Dolan's and went and knocked on his door. Oh, I mean, I know that they like I made that convinced I'm sorry. the monkeys. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> oh, my God.
3: Wow. Jeremy you're fired Peter and I are the only ones Left to talk about this record For the rest of the episode I'm sorry I've got a lot of notes And I don't need anybody Derailing do, me Sean right? do you
1: have the uh, Sound effect of the The guy falling into water <laughs> to, to oust Jeremy here
0: <laughs> No I deleted that one I'm sorry It uh, would have been Feeling mischievous It's Halloween I'm sorry
1: <laughs> Fair enough You can stay
0: Where were you Sean? Uh, in, 19, in 1967 <laughs>
3: While wow. Working as their the Moog salesman, they set up a Moog display at the Monterey Pop Festival, and were pushing this on all of the the hippie musicians out there, getting some new people convinced. One of the famous people that they convinced to purchase a Moog was the Beatle George Harrison. Mm. <laughs> one of the features that they offered as salesman of the Moog was that you know if a high profile musician purchased one. Either Beaver or Krauss would often deliver it and show them how to use it. So in this case, Bernie Krauss showed up at George Harrison's house, helped him set up his new instrument, showed him how to make some cool sounds on it, and then performed a demonstration piece uh, presenting like the range of the instrument. And without his knowledge or consent, George Harrison recorded this demonstration piece and then ended up releasing it as the entire B-side to his 1969 album Electronic Sound. Again, not crediting Bernie Krause or paying him any royalties. And uh, Bernie has claimed that when he confronted George Harrison about this, George was just like, whatever, I'm a Beatle. I'm always right. and I'll do whatever I want. Yeah, Like, maybe I'll send you some money later, but you're not getting credit or royalty for this.
2: Ooh.
1: Very in contrast to the way the public generally perceives George Harrison, this very thoughtful, quiet, spiritual person (laughs) and that
3: yeah the the nice beetle the less problematic beetle (laughs) yeah (laughs) which may still be technically true but uh (laughs) i think all four of them had more than enough of their issues yeah yeah and they had
1: been living in a a fantasy world for basically their entire adult lives as you know which true uh, george harrison's was probably 26 Years old at the time. (laughs) Yeah, it's that story because there's very detailed accounts that uh, Bernie Krause has about that interaction.
3: It's it's very unpleasant
1: and very unprofessional on George Harrison's Mm -hmm. end.
3: Well, we'll leave the bio right there and play another song. Can
0: you do another spooky sound before it, though? Another spooky
3: sound? Yeah. All right, ready? Here you go. We're going to play Side A, Track One, Looking Back Now. This was written by Bernie Krause and Adrian Anderson, who was a songwriter that notably worked with Barry Manilow, Dionne Warwick, and Melissa Manchester. The vocals are by Bernie Krause. Plus, the Beaver and Krauss Celestial Choir.
4: Where does all the time go? Like in a dream, I see myself. Oh, looking back now past the days of my life, I can hardly believe that i just didn't care wash me down lord wash me down now it's my new time around wash me down lord
3: Once again, a very polarizing track on this record. A lot of people have said that they really don't like Bernie Krause's vocals, but for me, I love it. And that's one of my favorite tracks on the record. And I also love all of the string arrangements that kind of take over midway through the song. Mm -hmm.
2: Um,
3: This whole album is arranged by a guy named Jimmy Haskell. Yeah. Either one of you remember what other record we (sighs) talked about that he arranged?
1: It wasn't Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds, was it? It
3: was. Okay. Yeah. 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 Good deal. He also worked on a couple Kenny Rankin albums, as well as Glenn Campbell and many other uh, pop,
0: soul, and country artists from the time period. I kind of liked, in the first part of that song, I like that it could pass as a 1980s Lou Reed song.
3: <laughs> but, you know, I had not thought of that until you mentioned it while we were listening to the track, and you're completely right.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, It's funny because I was sitting there thinking, you know, the vocal might not be great, but there's something that it reminds me of that I like, and then Jeremy said that, and bingo. That was totally it. And uh, Sean, I don't want to take credit for it, but Sean did say he's just waiting for that Bernie Krause Metallica <laughs> collaboration, and Jeremy said it'll be called Boo Boo.
3: Yeah. It's the thing I didn't know I needed but now it's that's all I want. Could still happen. Yeah, he's still out there. He's 82. He's still ripping it, you know.
0: It could happen. <laughs>
3: <laughs> is it is it likely or necessary? No.
0: I didn't like the string part that comes after the main song part. It just feels kind of pretentious to me. Like, ooh, here's a we're going to change the tempo here. No, here's a key change. And I don't know. Didn't do it for me.
1: <laughs> I like them. I I don't, I guess I can see that it, I don't know that it really had a whole lot to do with what was happening earlier in the song. Like, it does it just feel like kind of married together without much reason for you. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that argument, but it, just as a standalone thing, I was, I was enjoying how those strings sounded while we were listening just now.
3: I like listening to the album as a complete piece, and you kind of, there's songs that you start to get lost in, and then as soon as you get lost, it suddenly is completely different, and I love that about it, but like we said, that is, that is the one thing that really divides people on this record. You want to jump back into some more bio?
0: Yeah, tell us about Mickey Dolan's.
3: <laughs> All
2: right.
1: so, so apparently, it was true that that, that he sold one to Mickey Dolenz. It just didn't go down like Jeremy said. So, <laughs> to further <laughs> complicate and convolute things, <laughs>
3: yeah. So we were in uh '67 and '69 with the George Harrison thing and them selling the Moog synthesizer. Another. Notable thing around that time, in 1968, they released an influential album called The Nonsuch Guide to Electronic Music. This was a box set of a kind of demonstration record of the synthesizer and its capabilities and tonal palette. And for a lot of people, it was the first time they'd ever really heard synthesizers and was a big part of what kind of sparked the growing interest in this new instrument. So as a result of all these things over the next few years beaver and kraus became some of the most in-demand session musicians playing synthesizers and sound effects on countless music and film projects sometimes working 80 hours a week on various projects so some of the musicians that they'd either inspired to purchase a synthesizer or just were playing music on includes the monkeys as jeremy said and they convinced mickey Dolenz to buy one and he was a early famous person who was very interested in the synthesizer sound and you can hear beaver and kraus playing on their song star collector from the pisces aquarius capricorn and jones limited album Mm -hmm. some other notable tracks that you can hear these guys on in the background is the birds space odyssey from the notorious bird brothers album neil young they're playing on the song the old laughing lady from his self-titled album Mm -hmm. They're on the song Cool, Cool Water by the Beach Boys from the Sunflower album. They're on The Doors' Strange Days. And they also contributed score and sound effects to films like The Graduate, Cool Hand Luke, Rosemary's Baby, Catch-22, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And they also worked on some television, including The Twilight Zone and Bewitched.
1: Wow. They're uh, just interspliced into entertainment.
3: (laughs) Yeah. These two guys are, you know, in that group of incredibly influential musicians that most people have never heard of, but you have definitely heard their work in many different areas. One quick thing about their session, working with the doors, Bernie Krause stated that the result of them doing that inspired him to vow to never touch drugs again, (laughs) (laughs) because they were supposed to come in and do a handful of overdubs, all these, to all these tracks. So they got to the studio, set up, were ready to go. And then the doors came in and wanted to record some more stuff before the studio musicians added to it. And he said he just sat there all night watching them get like more and more fucked up and less able to play their instruments. And it was like not till like the early hours of the next morning when they were able to actually start performing. He said it was just so frustrating and so sad to watch these great players just deteriorate in front of him over the course of the night that he decided he never wanted to be a part of that
1: yeah and that's them with a guest in the studio (laughs) like (laughs) yeah wow
3: so that takes us to the late 60s early 70s and due to the rise of their influence and popularity they were signed initially to the Warner Brothers subsidiary Seven Arts, and they released an album called Ragnarok in 1969. And then they were signed officially to the actual Warner Brothers label and released the the trio of albums, In a Wild Sanctuary, Gandharva, and All Good Men. There's a few notable things about the other two records in that trilogy as well. There's a song called Walking Green Algae Blues from the In a Wild Sanctuary record, And that is the earliest or one of the earliest musical pieces to feature a long segment of animal sounds as components of the orchestration. The concept required them to gather their own recordings of wildlife because at that point there wasn't a lot of available, you know, sound effects and recordings that they could get their hands on. So Paul Beaver was unwilling to get down and dirty and go out into nature and explore for these samples. So Bernie Krause took that on. And in 1968, he ventured out into the woods to collect audio samples, which in turn sparked a lifelong passion for recording natural soundscapes that we will talk about a little bit more later on. Another interesting song from the record In a Wild Sanctuary, there's a track on there called Spaced, which features a synthesizer note that expands into a giant glissando and then resolves on a major chord at the end. And this whole concept was basically ripped off copied note for note and condensed and then reused as the famous THX sound logo that you hear before just about every movie in theaters.
0: Oh, far out.
3: That was used
1: in the movie. When a stranger calls as well. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. 1978.
1: Wow. I didn't know that Beaver and Krauss originated that.
3: Yeah. The secret influencers. I'm telling (laughs) you, we're now getting into the early to mid seventies after this record. All Good Men came out in 72. They were working on a few new projects when unfortunately Paul Beaver collapsed on stage at a performance in LA in January of 1975 and then died the following day of a cerebral aneurysm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize that
1: he had died so long ago until I was looking into this.
3: Yeah. I was not aware of that either. I was like, oh, I want to know what these guys are up to now. And I'm reading all that stuff, but all the things Bernie Krause is doing. And it's like, what, what happened to Paul Beaver? Oh, oh no. Yeah. Died a very long time ago. Yeah. Not, not too long after this album. A yes, few years. Exactly. So they were in the middle of working on two different projects at that point that Bernie Krause eventually finished on his own in memory of Paul And those are the albums Citadels of Mystery that Bernie Krause released on Tacoma Records in 1979. And then they had both been working on an updated version of the Nonesuch Guide to Electronic Music called the New Nonesuch Guide to Electronic Music. And that was finally released in
1: 1981. Tacoma, is that John Fahey's label?
0: Yeah.
3: That is John Fahey's label, which is another thing I wanted to mention. If you dive into some of this fringe folk music, especially American primitive, you'll find that there's actually a pretty strong connection between ambient, experimental, and soundscapes along with folk music. So there's there's an interesting precedent for this kind of stuff.
0: Can we back up the train a little bit? Did you back it up? You hinted that you were going to explain Why Warner Brothers footed the bill for this trilogy?
3: Well, I mean, I think there's two reasons for that. One, bigger record labels were a lot more willing to experiment on weird projects around this time. You know, there's plenty of other examples of highly non-commercial music still getting on a major label just because, you know, weird stuff was making money. So they just kind of didn't know what was going to hit and just kind of throwing everything at the wall sometimes. And then also, you know, even though they were not superstar musicians, they were the kind of guys that everyone in the music industry knew about them, especially, you know, at this time in the late sixties, if you wanted synthesizer sounds on your record, you called Beaver and Krauss to do it almost exclusively. So they were famous within certain niche circles. It was either
1: them or Tanto's Expanding Headband. That you yes. Called.
0: <laughs> exactly. Does that answer your question? Yes, you are free to return to your timeline. (laughs) (laughs) Only if you give me another spooky sound right now, though.
3: Thank you. So in the late 70s, after completing the projects that Paul Beaver and Bernie Krause were working on, Bernie retired from the music business. One of his last jobs was working on the score and sound effects to the film Apocalypse Now, which he said was a very difficult and trying process and claims to have been fired and rehired at least a half dozen times during the making of that film. So around the age of 40, he quits the music business and decides to completely rethink his career path. He enrolled in a graduate studies program and earned a doctorate in creative arts with an internship in marine bioacoustics. There's a quote from him that says, You might think I left the world of music behind for that of natural sound. Instead, that is where I truly found it. So, you know, we want to talk a lot about Beaver and Krauss, the duo, and the time period around when this record was made. But the thing about Bernie Krauss is that it was kind of just the beginning of music for him as he stated there's a whole fascinating history from him at this point onward where he kind of uh, gradually becomes one of the preeminent voices in in the field of soundscape ecology either of you uh want to take a stab at what that might mean
1: i'm guessing it means recording the sounds of nature studying patterns and making determinations about changes in the environment over time as evidenced by those recordings.
0: That's what I was going to say. <laughs> well, you both nailed it. Gold stars for both
3: of you. <laughs> Thank you. Beautiful. So just a little bit of information about this whole time period in his life. He coined the terms geophony, biophony, and anthropony. Oh, those are all his terms? those are his terms. I mean, breaking down things that were already talked about, but kind of adding more definition and inventing those words and their corresponding definition. But geophony is the sounds that are made by the earth and the environment. So, you know, wind, etc. The biophony is basically all animal sounds. And the anthropony is sounds made by humans or human-made technology. <laughs> So a lot of his soundscape work, he's traveling to these remote locations, preferably ones that are completely devoid of any human sound, and especially areas that have remained untouched by human expansion for thousands of years. Devoid of Um, anthropony. Yes, that's, that's his goal, is to find those places and make accurate recordings of the soundscape. So there's a lot of information about this. Good places to start. There is a TED Talk with Bernie Krause where he kind of goes over this part of his life and his work out there creating these soundscapes and working in soundscape ecology. There's also a book that I have read most of at this point. I was trying to finish the whole thing this weekend before uh, recording this episode, but a book came out in 2012. It's called The Great Animal Orchestra, Finding the Origins of Music in the World's Wild Places, which I highly recommend. During this time period of his life, in the book, etc., he's talking a lot about how sound relates to wildlife conservation, and he has some very interesting theories on how wildlife communicates and how it is much more organized than was initially perceived, especially when he was getting started in this in the late 60s. He also has some really interesting theories about how natural sound is the original inspiration for all human music.
0: Hmm. I can see that. That makes sense.
3: Yeah. Yeah, everything he talks about is just like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. And I guess I've kind of thought about that, just not in the way that he's describing it. And he goes he, he goes real far with that. There's a lot of really interesting ways to look at the world around us. He's also done some studies where he's taken audio recordings in forest before there was selective logging procedures. You know, the idea being that if you just cut out a few trees here and there, it completely doesn't interrupt the Wildlife and he's proven that, even though some of these areas visually don 't look a whole lot different when you compare the audio recordings before and after it's amazing how much wild sound is completely missing after the areas have been disturbed
2: yeah
1: I, I got the impression that his argument is that uh, sound can sometimes uh, we don't necessarily think of sound as something we trust as much as our visual aspects. And he's trying, you know, making the argument that sound can prove a lot of things that we can't see.
3: Sure. And especially with natural sound and, you know, animal noises, there was not a lot of thought put into that, especially when he was getting started and, uh, the field of soundscape ecology, when he was getting into it, basically the only use for it was, finding and isolating sounds of specific animals to kind of collect and preserve these different voices. And he was one of the first people to focus more on the big picture soundscape and understanding these natural areas by listening to all of the animals within it. And he was one of the first people to notice that all the different species of animals were occupying their own specific frequency ranges so that you could have this seemingly chaotic natural sound When all of it is actually more rhythmic and more structured than you might actually think. And more so than a lot of his colleagues at the time were thinking. So he's been highly influential in these scientific fields over the past several decades.
1: I actually had Bernie Krause come in and record my introduction for our rewind uh, of the uh, bread episode where I was in the woods. I was like... (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, Peter's scared of
3: the woods He didn't want to go in there I needed a field guide (laughs) Speaking of being, you know, secret influencers And, you know, you've probably heard songs that Beaver and or Krause played on without realizing it You've probably, if you've ever been to a natural history museum You've probably heard some Bernie Krause recordings Mm. For the soundscapes that are used in the different displays (laughs)
1: Or does he also record the sounds that you hear in the in the the grocery store in the produce section? <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's possible. They're everywhere, man. <laughs> Very influential. All right, let's dive into another song. Yeah, what are we so, what are we doing next? We're going to we're going to play the first track on the B-side. This is a cover of Johann Sebastian Bach's Prelude.
0: Song tickles this genre of record that I'm just not into, which is Bach or other Baroque type classical being performed on synthesizers. Switched on Bach? Yeah. Yeah, there's like a whole range of those records out there that I don't get. They're right over my head as to why people enjoy them, but. Somebody enjoys them.
3: Yeah, that's the the oddities section of dollar bin collecting. The stuff that you're either buying because you genuinely like this weird oddball stuff, or often people just collect it just to have strange things. But yeah, you're right. There was an interesting trend around this time period, um, especially from the great Wendy Carlos of doing these classical synthesizer crossover records. And... You know, that's probably the reason why they have that element on here as well. Also has some nods to the Synergy project that we covered early on in season one. Definitely. And it continues to just show the wide range of influences that are present on this record.
1: Yeah. Very disparate album.
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's
1: like a, a mixtape. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so we mentioned the cover art being cool. Either one of you guys want to describe what's on there?
1: There is a big stone fish head, right?
3: (laughs) I don't know if it's made of stone or if it's just a giant fish, but yeah.
1: I got to pull it up real quick.
3: You know, there's like, there's elements that jump out at you right away. And then some things that you don't notice until you take a real close look at it too. There's the giant fish coming out of this kind of sea of green forest next to this castle of sorts yeah and if you look real close the the fish is like leaping out of this forest to try and eat a hot air balloon (laughs) and then the moon it kind of looks like a, a large fish eye on there so it's it's a highly surrealistic interesting cover art that was done by a guy named ed thrasher who has worked on many, many projects doing overseeing the art on albums, but two very notable records that he worked on are Jimi Hendrix's, are you experienced and Prince's purple rain?
1: Oh, wow. Whoa. Looks like, uh, he also did van Morrison's astral weeks. Interesting.
2: Yeah. Uh,
3: Bernie Krause collaborated with van Morrison a couple of times as well.
1: Oh really? He has worked with everyone. Hasn't he?
3: It's it's true (laughs) all over the place. Real quick, I want to mention some of the session players that are present on this record. It's a lot of jazz and rock-based session players from the West Coast. Some of these guys are Wrecking Crew members. You got Howard Roberts on guitar, Al Casey also on guitar. You got Victor Feldman on percussion, Ray Pullman on bass, Frank Cap on drums, and Mike Lang on piano. As I mentioned there's also Adrienne Anderson co-wrote a couple of the songs on here and does some lead and backing vocals which is interesting because she was primarily a songwriter. There's only like four records where you can hear her singing on it and we're going to hear some of her vocals in a little bit on the final track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I I like her vocals. I do too. I I like the folk pop songs on here and I also wanted to mention that especially the songs where Bernie Krause is singing for some reason remind me a lot of the soundtrack to the more recent Halloween themed cartoon Over the Garden Wall which is a favorite here at the Hartman house and we re-watch it every year but that one has a lot of surrealist vibes and these kind of like Tin Pan Alley style songs at times and this kind of like weird surrealist folk pop influence. And I feel like this album matches that vibe in a interesting and unexpected way.
1: Very cool. Very, very cool. So you
3: guys want to hear about this, uh, playlist that I made to accompany the episode. There better not be any 10 CC on it. There actually is no 10 CC because I tried to focus mostly on songs that were mentioned on the podcast and stuff that they were, associated with are the monkeys so there's a track from
0: yes oh thank god okay go ahead yeah
3: <laughs> mickey Dolans is on the playlist <laughs> right after having his door beat down by bernie and krauss <laughs> and forced at gunpoint to buy a moog synthesizer
0: <laughs> that's how i remember it too
3: <laughs> yeah exactly so you got a track from the cosmic sounds album by the zodiac There's a track from Hal Blaine's Psychedelic Percussion, Neil Young song that we mentioned, The Old Laughing Lady.
2: The Old Laughing Lady.
3: There's some Beaver and Krause material from In a Wild Sanctuary, the song Spaced from the THX sound logo that we talked about, Walking Green Algae Blues with the soundscape mixed in. Mystic Moods Orchestra, who Paul Beaver played with on a couple of different records. I've said before, it's one of my favorite uh, dollar bin cheese thrift store groups to collect. There's um, Quincy Jones on here. There's a famous sample at the beginning of the track Ironside that you'll recognize from hip hop. And that synthesizer was played by Beaver and Kraus.
1: I am
3: Ironside. Not quite. <laughs> That's the one <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> Beach Boys track we mentioned is on here. I also put a track from the Jackie Lomax album. Is this what you want? Uh, Beaver and Krause both played on all over that record. The Doors are on here and the Monkees, Star Collector from Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited. You can find this playlist as well as all of our other playlists on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Sean. And don't forget listeners, you can always check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast can help us out and receive bonus content in return, patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. But of course, if you uh, financially can't support us, you can always just tell a friend about this wonderful record collecting podcast that you listen to and Hang out with us, your, your buds, every week. Word of mouth is a great way to advertise. The best form of advertising, they say. So, whenever you're standing around the water cooler at work talking about podcasts, drop us in there.
0: Do you think that's how Beaver and Krauss sold so many? i you think it was word of mouth? You know, I think that was actually a large part of it. Wow. Wow. We could learn a thing or two from them. It's true.
3: And hit us up. Tell us what you think about this record. I'm curious. Are you on Team Sean or Team Jeremy with this
0: one? Ooh. Pitting us against each other. I like that. That's right. <laughs>
3: Bitter rivals.
1: And I'm just gonna referee. I'm I don't have a horse in this race. Yeah. It's a battle of the brothers.
3: <laughs> well, that's all my notes. That's about all I've got to say. Do you have any more this record. do you have any more spooky sound effects? Well, I mean I guess it's time for us to exit the haunted house and venture back out into the world. This was a...
0: I think your cat Philly boy Roy didn't want me to leave.
3: It's true. Can never leave. Never leave this haunted house again.
1: This is a truly haunted record that you brought us, Sean. I think so. Truly, you know, truly legendary, truly, truly haunted.
3: <laughs> well, thanks for listening. I've been your host, Sean Hartman.
0: I've been your host, Jeremy Ruggles. And I have been your host,
1: Peter Cook. What are we leaving on again, Sean? The It's one that Adrian Anderson sings on?
3: Yes, we are going to leave on the title track, All Good Men, co-written by Anderson and Kraus, with vocals by Adrian
0: Anderson.
1: Excellent. We'll see you next time on I'd Buy That for a Dollar.
0: Hashtag Team Jeremy.
2: Good. Mm-hmm.